podcast this week, in the week of the return of Fantastic Beasts, we talk to the most fantastic beast of them all, Harry Potter himself, and Star of the Lost City, Daniel Radcliffe. Hooray! Hooray! And there are no other guests. Hooray! The overbooker is over. <laughs> Until For next now. week. Yes, all that anyway, and the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that hasn't yet been privatised for no good reason, although we are open to offers. <laughs> Bidding starts at 500 million. Seems reasonable. It seems very reasonable. <laughs> very reasonable indeed. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, we're back in the studio this week, and I'm joined by my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Helen O'Hara, our geek queen, is here. Hello. James Dyer, a great big fucking nerd, is here, and he is resting his arm on the table with his finger propped up <laughs> on his cheek. Why? You look like you're judging me. Why are you I'm judging? always <laughs> judging you. Uh, I don't know. This is it's just it's comfortable. I'm resting my head, like like shifting the load around. Is this your resting bell end face? A little bit, yeah. All right. Uh, last but not least, of course, we're joined by the nicest man in show business. If you ignore all the serial killing he does on the side, it is, of course, my wonderful adopted son, Ben Travis. Hello. Hello, son. Hi. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. You I'm were good. in late last night. I was in late last night. I was. You came in late last night to the place that we share because obviously you're my son. Yes. Uh, I, I have reasons for that. I have reasons for that. I was doing an interview. You were doing an interview. That's yes. the story and I'm sticking with it. That's good. That's good. I uh, love the intro of Ben as a serial killer and then the little cheery, hello. Hello. Hiya. How's it going? Uh, Buffalo Bill, if he'd been more cheery, Clarice Starling would never have suspected him. Like he opens the door, Jamie Gum opens the door and he's clearly, going, I'm Jamie Gum and he's clearly very weird. Yeah. You know, and he's, dancing around and you know it's a bit I know whereas if you'd been like oh, legs. it would have been great yeah, yeah. You know, if been, hiya she'd never have suspected him wow spoilers much, there for it much shorter film <laughs> 30 year old film don't know if anyone from the FBI is listening to this but uh, that's it if you see someone and they go hiya not a serial killer if they go back, then yes wow anyway should we start? Should we start the podcast? Uh, let's do that. Uh, so I want to mention very, very quickly before we get into the listener question uh, that we are about, it's that time of year again, folks. We're about to enter the British Podcast Awards uh, once again with hope in our hearts and a smile and a spring in our step. <laughs> and uh, we haven't won yet, but, you know, hope springs eternal and we might just accidentally win <laughs> this year if they, you know, we're not, I don't think we're entirely what they're looking for. Which is, a, they're probably looking for podcasts to start within two minutes of the actual intro mm, rather than just That is more meandering. conventional. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is. It is. I've been told what most podcasts do. Uh, but we have to put a clip reel together uh, of five clips from shows over the last year. So shows that began in February 2021 and go to 28th of February 2022. So it would cover episode 500. We yes. will put together one clip at least from episode 500. But... Uh, because I forget the podcast the second we put them up. Absolutely. Can you, if you guys listening at home know uh, if there's any moments from the podcast that stand out over the last year or so, 
let me know. Slide into my DMs or just reply to me on Twitter and, you know, it'll help me put together this clip reel. So This clip reel, which, and I can't emphasize this enough, needs to be submitted on Monday morning. Oh, but yeah, that's what, if the people tell me what the clips are, I can edit this really quickly. Nice piece of piss. Boom, boom, boom. Absolutely. But, so what we probably would look for is a nice, a spread, a nice cross-section of things. So moments of buffoonery, uh, a nice moment with a, you know, a big star in an interview, uh, a, a, a review, perhaps, sure. uh, maybe also a a moment where we got very real and serious about a yes. very <laughs> like real last and year topic. when we got shortlisted after you submitted me giving the history of the C bomb in movies, and that was actually yes. something you put in the clip reel. And I it, can't it help was, feeling you were trolling the judging I, panel when you I did that. I kind of was mm. a little bit. I was like nominate this you and they did see units and they and they did um yeah. we didn't win we, we didn't, didn't win. win no we didn't win so yeah please send them in to me i'm at chris Hewitt on twitter uh which is also my uh twitter handle whenever people are sending in questions for the podcast because it's time for the listener question we do have a little bank of listener questions set aside uh but this week i wanted to tackle one thing in particular and i asked people on twitter to send us in questions because Sometimes people are inspired by things that are happening in the news mm-hmm. and they will tailor their questions accordingly. And I was hoping, but I didn't want to expressly, explicitly ask someone to ask this question. I was hoping that someone might have been inspired by the government's decision to privatize Channel 4, which I don't know if you have been following this, but the government have decided to privatize Channel 4, which is the fourth channel <laughs> over here, which is a channel that has a, a remit to produce, shall we say, offbeat, independent yeah. programming. Although it's always surprising how few people know that it's publicly owned. Yes, it's publicly, publicly owned, but not yeah. publicly funded. Yes. Right, yeah. which is, funded. yes, yeah. advertising. Uh, so Channel 4 is now being privatized, which um, has been met with uh, a lot of outrage mm-hmm. about this decision. So they, they've decided to sell off uh, Channel 4 for what seems to be no good reason. And uh, Channel 4... What, we should buy it. We should buy it. But apparently it's going to be a billion. At least a billion. Right. I um, can put in £10? Pound. What about you guys? Yeah, I, I could manage 10 Okay. Okay, 10 All right. So we've got the first... If you guys can bid. do the rest, yeah. then we're yeah, good. Then we're, then we're set up set. a GoFundMe. So we'll do a kick. We'll do a Kickstarter then for uh, for Channel Four. We got forty pounds. We're good. We're, we are very very wow. good indeed. That's enough for maybe a box set of Come Dine with Me, <laughs> which is which is possibly along with Brookside Channel Four's greatest achievement. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, so the question I was hoping someone would ask was, what are our favorite Film Four movies? Now, Film Four is the Cinematic arm of Channel 4, it has been a huge boon to the British film industry over the the years since it was launched, uh, and it has funded or part-funded some incredible films over the years, and we don't know what is going to happen to Film 4 if the Channel 4 privatization goes through, because that's not 100% guaranteed. Certainly the government's and the culture secretary, the Dean Dorries, certainly their intention to privatize Channel 4. That might mean that Film 4 goes off and becomes its own thing and and gets more private funding and makes more movies, possibly, or it might signal a death now for it. We don't know at this point in time, but what I'm trying to say here is that Film 4 has been hugely productive, a great contributor to British cinema over the last 40 years. And what are our favorite uh, favorite films? And so this yeah. question came in from at Ben S. Travis. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Ben. Yes. Thanks. 
Great that question. was not prodded at all from Chris. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I mean, the, the list, when you look through yeah. the list, even an abridged list of films that have been either produced or co-produced by Film 4, it is absolutely insane. Uh, I wonder if we should get some of the crazy huge ones out of the way. Donkey because- Punch. <laughs> Straight it's donkey, donkey punch. punch as ever James <laughs> yeah I think we can all agree this conversation begins and ends with donkey punch only because you're in the room <laughs> <laughs> I mean I was going to go for train spotting yeah I mean sure <laughs> it's but, an option but but you thought choose life choose donkey punch yeah 100% that is fair. Yeah, I'm with Ben on this one. <laughs> I really very much am with Ben. But like, look, it is to look at a list of film for productions is to essentially look at the best of British film over the past 40 years. And it is to look also at a, a list of risk taking films that would not necessarily get commercial funding uh, to the degree that they got from the likes of Film 4. And obviously there's also, you know, the BFI, who also do enormously, enormously important work in funding uh, UK films, and there's quite a few co-productions with them here. Um, But it is really important. It's it's important there are, you know, female-directed films in here, things Mm -hmm. like You Were Never Really Here. There are um, first-time directors all over the place. There are unconventional, weird army kind of ideas for films that wouldn't necessarily be made elsewhere. I mean, even something like The Favourite on paper, that's not a slam dunk. Um, uh, it's just, uh, Four Lions was filmed for, you know, uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral was part funded by Film Four. It is an extraordinary, extraordinary list. And I don't yeah. think it works as well without Channel Four, you know, behind that. Yeah. Uh, so I think, uh, I think that movies co-produced or produced by Film 4. Let's just say Film 4 movies to mm. get that out of the way. It's much easier. Uh, so I think Film 4 movies have won something like 20 Oscars over the years as well mm. and brought in a lot of money to this country and not just in terms of money spent on production in this country and, and putting that back into the British film industry in this country, but also just box office yeah. alone. So two of the Film 4 movies uh, that I'm thinking of, they're, I don't think they're necessarily the best, although they're very, very funny, are the Inbetweeners movies. Mm-hmm. And the Inbetweeners 2, uh, if I'm right in thinking, was was particularly huge. Or was it the Inbetweeners movie? Both of those movies were yeah. massive, though. Like, massive in terms of, you know, box office in this country around about... Absolutely. 30, Shaun of the Dead million, as well. Like you know, was, last yeah. Night in, Sh- in Soho. I mean, big, big commercial movies. Mm-hmm. But not just those, you know. Also things like Shame and Hunger yeah. and stuff that that you know enhances um enhances the, the the reputation of British film around the world that are brilliant films in themselves that launch that launch the careers of of yeah exactly of actors uh, to new heights um and those don't necessarily you know get fun. I mean the in-betweeners movie somebody might pick up do you know what I mean do you know what I mean but like uh yeah hunger, but it's a channel four Production. Yeah, no, I know it is, so, but you know what I'm saying. There yeah. might be somebody else who would step into that gap, but a hunger or even something like an in Bruges. I don't mm. know if mm, yeah commercial 100%. people see that. Well, I think Shaun of the Dead is a perfect one yeah. because Shaun of the Dead is the film that launched the film career of uh, of Edgar Wright, and in a way, he was coming full circle by by going back to film four with Last Night in Soho, and I'm sure he feels very very strongly about this uh, as well. I'm sure lots of directors, lots of actors and people who've worked in film four movies feel very, very strongly about this. Uh, but but Shaun the Dead is you know a movie that was, you know, working title, uh, co-produced it with film four and it was turned down by so many production companies and so many distributors uh, and so many studios in, in the UK and they, they took a chance on it. What's the most successful, do you think, of all the film four films? It depends what your metric Slumdog? is. Slumdog? Four Weddings? In terms of, you know, 
Four weddings, yeah. But like, how many? Because what did Slumdog win in the end? Like, it was a shitload, wasn't it? Oh, at the Oscars, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it did very so well. So imagine in terms of profile. Oh, okay. 12 Years a Slave as well. Was no, I mean, film four, I did it right. Picture, yeah. <laughs> you know? um, but that's yeah. the thing I think that we're getting at as well is that you've got uh, a set of kind of particular British filmmakers who have been some of the most distinctive voices from from this country who have risen up through film four. So you've got Danny Boyle, you've got Steve McQueen, you've got Edgar Wright, mm -hmm. you've got Ben Wheatley. Like if I was going to pick mm -hmm. some favourites, mm -hmm. uh, for me, the the double whammy of Kill List and Sightseers yeah. is my favourite kind of little pocket of, of Ben Wheatley stuff that feels like the sort of films that no other kind of production company would have made that that feel extremely British, but yeah. that have that kind of independent quality to them that are kind of transgressive and yet really kind of grabby and entertaining uh, in their own right that for me I, I love the genre leanings of, of things and you get films like Attack the Block as well mm. um, yeah. Joe Cornish's Attack the Block uh, so I, I love that film for kind of blends the art house, as Helen said, you've got filmmakers like Yorgos Lanthimos, um, who, who have done plenty of Film 4 productions. Um, you get those art house leanings, you get a little bit of European stuff, but also you get British genre cinema, which is just my personal kind of area that I would always lean into. Um, uh, you think of, yeah, a lot of the Danny Boyle stuff, 28 mm -hmm. Days Later, I mm -hmm. believe, was Film 4, Sunshine, mm -hmm. um, which then leads you into Alex Garland, and as he said, Ex Machina, just just real bangers from the last like 30 years or so of, yeah. of British yeah. cinema. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Three yeah. Billboards was a film for Cobra. I didn't realise that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Martin McDonough, um, yeah. obviously with In Bruges as well. In Bruges would have oh, to be a, mm -hmm. a a big pick of mine. Because, um, like, again, who else would have made that film? That film is so like scabrous. <laughs> and even though it's not necessarily like, well, I, I guess it's a mix of like Irish and, um, well, predominantly Irish. But the 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 tone of that film, the the places that it goes to dramatically and comedically, but in a way that feels also very accessible. I think that's the thing with film four as well: the accessibility mm. and the way that that tied into the TV system of the, is a channel over here as well. If you're not in the UK, film four is a channel that shows not just film four films, but it, it obviously all the films that are produced by film four do eventually go there as well. And onto the all four streaming service. Mm. So it was not just like an incubator for all these incredible British filmmakers, but a place for people across the UK to see those films for free and yeah. to open people's kind of worlds and, and minds up to all these different filmmaking voices. Yeah. And listen, we don't want to do, I mean, there was a, a danger of doing this last week when we were talking about Bruce Willis, uh, who has retired. And there's there's a danger that sometimes you can talk about a moment like that and a momentous thing like that as if they have died. <laughs> yeah. You know, he hasn't died. Yeah. Film four may survive this and may actually thrive and go on and, and become even bigger mm. than it is now. But Or somebody just, might hit this government hard enough around the head that they give up on the whole idea. I have a feeling that might happen. Sometimes if, if you know if the if the people can yell loud enough. Can we objectively just point out factually that there is a change.org petition that has been going around has been shared by many prominent filmmakers yeah. who are, have been associated with Film 4 in the yeah. past as a sort of pushback against all of this. The point is, if you see the Film 4 logo on a movie, by and large, that movie will be fantastic or will be taking risks uh, and and being bold and experimental in some way. Or like giving, Donkey Punch. Like Donkey Punch. <laughs> and it all comes back to Donkey Punch with Jimbo. We're doing a spoiler special for that, aren't we? We are, yeah. It's going <laughs> to be great. Go. I'm really looking forward yeah. to it. 
But, you know, Ben is absolutely right. I mean, you just look at the list we're looking at. I think we're all looking at the same list, which is on Wikipedia. And this is just a selected list of film four movies. Uh, but there are some absolute behemoths on there. It's a tremendous organization. And I hope that it survives. Got really excited when I saw the deep blue sea on here, but in brackets, it's not the shark one. No. So that is upsetting. I mean, it's Terence Davies, but. It's Terence Davies. It's a very, very good film. <laughs> but it's it, not the shark one it, with LL Cool J. I know, I know. It's it not the shark one. It doesn't have, you know, you think water's fast, you should see ice. Yeah. So Genetically <laughs> modified sharks make every film at least 30% better. Yeah. If he had thrown some in there, you know, maybe oh, well, you know. Biting T. Hiddles or, or Rachel Weiss. No. Just a, just a little, a little chomp, no. a little chomp. No, the National Treasure is a, is a Disney. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. So there we go. We have. Uh, hopefully, did we actually answer the question that Ben sent in? What's our favorite? What is your favorite? If you had a favorite film for a film, what would your? I'm going to say In Bruges. In Bruges. Yep. All right. Good call, Jimbo. That's a good question. I don't want to say train spotting because it feels really first base, but it is probably train spotting, unfortunately. Um, but if I would pick a, a kind of an out there choice, I might pick Venus, which I love. And I don't think anyone, apart from about five people, has seen, but it's fantastic. It is a good film. Jodie Whittaker, Peter O'Toole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, first base, I'd probably go Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. It's just, but then brackets, ex machina, brackets. I was really disappointed to look it up and find out that Nuns on the Run was not a film for film because in my head it absolutely was and it wasn't. <laughs> no one's taken responsibility for Nuns on the Run. <laughs> it may actually have been one where they've expunged it from the archives. They have indeed. Uh, yeah, I mean, my God, Rita Sue and Bob 2, Secrets and Lies. I'm just looking through the list here. It's an extraordinary list. Bloody hell. That is impressive. My name is Joe Paris, Texas. Oh my God. Phenomenal stuff. Well done, Film 4. Hurrah! Three cheers for Film 4. Three cheers for Britain. Hooray! Hooray? Hooray! Huzzah! Hooray! All right. Okay. So now we've got that out of the way. If you do have a question for the Empire Podcast, and thank you for those who submitted their questions this week. Um, they were, there were some good questions. They, <laughs> none of them were what I was looking for. <laughs> but that's fine. That's fine. This is a very, very rare circumstance uh, so if you do have a question for the Empire Podcast you can get in touch with me on Twitter I'm at Chris Hewitt you can slide into my DMs you can reply to any of my tweets or you can wait for a panicked shout out every now and again which is kind of what happened today right we've only got one guest this week and I don't know how that happened but we only have one guest this week really is, I know because we have two guests on the Pilot TV Podcast Chris, oh, so God. I don't really know what happened there we've got Will Poulter and we've got Sasha Monica Jackson from, uh, from Derry Girls neither of them James of the boy who lived. I mean, that is accurate. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. And is this you versus Daniel Radcliffe? This is me versus oh, Daniel Radcliffe. God, I almost can't contain myself. I couldn't either. Well, I wasn't going to um, tee him up now, but I guess we are. I guess yeah. our, our guest this oh. week is Daniel Radcliffe. And Ben. And Ben. And Ben, who uh, got to speak to Daniel Radcliffe, who is the star not of Fantastic Beasts, the What's It of Doohickey. What's it called? Secrets of Dumbledore. The Secrets of Dumbledore, uh, which is out this week uh, because Harry Potter isn't in these films because they take place many, many years before Harry Potter was even born. Correct. Yes, Yes. that is right. But he is the star of The Lost City, or one of the stars of The Lost City, uh, which is the... A raucous action adventure comedy that comes out next week. It stars Sandra Bullock and Channam uh, as a as a romance novelist and the male model cover star who adorns her books who get mixed up in some shenanigans in a jungle environment. And Daniel Radcliffe is the baddie. 
He is. He is. He is indeed. And so Ben, who grew up recently, s- yes, <laughs> <laughs> very recently, True. True. Uh, who basically was reared by Daniel Radcliffe, suckling at his teat. I didn't really phrase it that's that way to him. Definitely. That's not the way to say it. Is it not the way to say it? No. Never he, suckle <laughs> at Daniel's teat while you're interviewing him. It's, no. it's just not right. I can confirm that did not happen. Do you think Daniel Radcliffe's nipples produce butterbeer? <laughs> no. 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 I, I don't think about it a lot. Though, <laughs> Do you? Is, is that the true magic of the wizarding world? I think yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> anyway, Daniel Radcliffe's nipples aside, Ben is a huge Harry Potter fan and was very, very happy and excited to talk to Daniel Radcliffe last week uh, in person. Yeah, it was my first in-person interview since COVID. And it was wow. Daniel Radcliffe, Hooray. who I've never spoken to before. I've never spoken to any of the golden trio as they're... Oh, we're, we're all known. Yeah. Well, obviously, oh. you guys are the real golden trio here. Thanks. And yeah. I see you guys on the regular, but... Um, yeah, the the Potter guys, Daniel Radcliffe, always oh, he's, he's just seems like a chill dude, and I can confirm he was a chill dude. Are you just trying to work out who's who, <laughs> Helen? Because obviously sorry. you're Hermione. Which one's wrong? Um, hang on, what does it make you? You are hundred percent wrong, on, Chris. Why does she get to be Hermione automatically? I'm definitely because Hermione. Helen is the maximum Hermione. She's yeah. a huge. Is, I literally right. used to have the the nickname Hermione in the office. Remember, Amy called me that hang for a on, while. Hang on, I is, did. This, is this a nickname you gave yourself? Because yeah. I have no recollection of this. Yeah, but you don't remember anything. Amy gave me that when I was the only person to finish. Do you remember that porting over job we were doing where we had to clean up all the reviews? Sadly, yes, and I And I was do the only that. person to finish and nobody else finished. And yeah. that's what Amy nicknamed me afterwards. Wow. No recollection of this whatsoever. But uh, obviously, I'm Harry. He's never long bottom. <laughs> and I was going to say, you're Ron Weasley, Chris. I'm not fucking Ron Weasley. No, you fucking are. I'm not. <laughs> But James is definitely Draco Malfoy. Yes, he is Draco Malfoy. That coming. And let's interrogate this a little bit. Why the fuck am I Ron Weasley? I mean, if you have to ask. (laughs) (laughs) You are funny, and you do talk about food quite a lot, which are Ron's basically two main traits. Yes, I know, but I was attacked in my crib by a giant evil wizard. (laughs) So I don't know. That is that is a pretty hefty coincidence. I know. so bizarre. Mm. Fuck you, Ron Weasley. <laughs> anyway, here's Ben talking to Daniel Radcliffe. The last time he'll be talking to Daniel Radcliffe, <laughs> if I anything to do with it. Thanks a fucking bunch, Ben. Enjoy this interview, why don't you? It is such a pleasure to welcome to the Empire Podcast, Mr. Daniel Radcliffe. How are you doing? Hello, sir. Very, very well. Yeah, thank you for having me. Nice to be back. Yeah, lovely to be back. And for me, uh, this is my first interview in person since all the COVID stuff. Oh, cool. So it, it does feel like I'm back today. Well, thank you for, for letting me be your first one back. <laughs> well, um, thank you for no, being my it, first it's, one it's back. The, the, the starting the press tour was definitely like, oh, yes, I haven't done this in two years. And it suddenly feels really weird. Like getting out of the, uh, the car in Austin for the premiere and being like, oh, yeah, OK, we're back at a premiere. There's crowds of people all very close together. And, uh, you know, but no, it's it does feel it feels nice to be in a slightly more normal world again yeah yeah what was that thing for you when obviously this isn't all over by any stretch but when things started opening up a bit more what was the one thing that you were like i can do stuff in person now this is what i want to go and do 
Oh, just like eating at a restaurant inside without, because especially in New York, like, uh, you know, throughout the winter, it was very much like, okay, we can still go out to restaurants if we sit outside, but like it's New York in the winter. So how good is their outside seating situation? So just to, I don't know, just to be able to go into a restaurant and like not worry about it yeah. was, was or worry about it less was, uh, was very, very exciting. And did you plan that first meal? You were like, first one out, this is what it's got to be. No, we, we really didn't. Unfortunately, like so many of our favorite restaurants closed during the pandemic right. as well um so no i think we were just no the first time we were at we went back out uh it was a it was a steak restaurant in in canada um my girlfriend was filming up there and uh i we'd just done like an intense two-week quarantine like a proper canada was very on it at that time and I went to a restaurant again and it was like I had forgotten how society worked at all. Like I couldn't remember, like, do I ask you for food now? It's like, no, you haven't sat down yet. You know, it's, it's like the order of everything was weird. Yeah, it was very, very strange. <laughs> well, uh, that gives me the excuse that if this interview goes off the rails and yeah. it's my first one back, yeah, it's yeah, fine. Yeah, it's it's rust, all good. Rust. Yeah. Um, but we're here today to talk about The Lost City, which is tons of fun. I saw it yesterday, awesome. had an absolute laugh with it. It's such great. a great time. And uh you play the villain in this film, uh, the incredibly named Abigail Fairfax. <laughs> yes. Um, so how did this role come your way? What was the first you heard about this project? I, I read the script. I got sent the script um, in probably about March of last year. Um, and they started shooting in uh, June or July. Um, and I, you know, I have a kind of vague blanket rule of you know, make the films you would want to see. Um, and I read this and I, I'd recently watched the first mummy movie again. Yes. Um, and I, we kind of had a moment watching that going like, Oh, well, there are no films like this anymore. Like it's sad. Um, and then I read this and I was like, Oh, this is, this is one of them. Um, it just had, you know, the, and obviously when I was reading it, I knew that Sandra and Channing were the leads and I was just reading it going, God, I want to see this. Like, I want to see them play these parts and do these scenes. Um, and if I get to, you know, being it and being part of it, then uh, even better. Um, yes, Abigail Fairfax. We also on the shoot we checked into all her hotels um, under our character names. Right. So, but then everyone at the hotel thought it was proper and right to call you by whatever you checked in at. So whenever I went anywhere in the hotel, I would say, "Ah, yes, Mister Abigail." I was like, "Yes, yes, that's me." <laughs> And uh, when you were reading that script then, obviously, yeah, you've got Sandra and Channing, the leads here. Uh, you are playing the dapper sociopath <laughs> yes. of a villain. Uh, did they come to you with that role? Were you like, hey, they they saw this role and thought dapper sociopath, <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> yeah. How did that feel? I mean, that was great. I'm very happy to, you know, they, they I, I think there's, directors go one of two ways with me, maybe less so now, but I think after Potter particularly, there was a, you know, if 50% if of directors only saw me as one thing and only saw me as Harry, then the other 50% were kind of excited by the chance to be the people who showed me as something else. Um, and I think these directors were really, you know, e excited about getting to show me as this soci sociopathic uh, villain. Um, but he was also, there's, you know, he's a very funny villain to me. There's something so kind of pathetic about all of his motivations. Mm -hmm. um, and just the idea that, you know, obviously no one's the villain of their own story. So he thinks he's really cool and nice. And <laughs> the idea that he's kidnapping Sandra's character all the while thinking like, if you really think about it, you'll find kidnapping being really big. You th you'll think this is fun. Like if you realize what, what a cool opportunity this is. Um, yeah, that was just like a very, very funny aspect to, to this character for me. And yeah, just to work with um, Sandra and Channing and get to play around with them on those scenes. I really, you know, I, I grew up, obviously on the Potter films with Maggie Smith and Richard Harris and all these people who were legends and amazing. And I was aware of their status as those things, but 
I wasn't familiar with their films. Like I hadn't watched A Man Called Horse when I was 12 or whatever. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think working with Sandy was a real kind of pinch yourself moment because I have grown up watching her um, and and been a fan of hers for so long. Uh, so yeah, to, to actually get to be in a movie with her is still uh, mind blowing to me. Yeah. What, what was your kind of Sandra Bullock movie growing up? Because we grew up in the time of, well, Miss Congeniality yeah. and stuff and all the comedies and things, but also Speed. Speed. I mean, speed. I, I actually saw Speed so late relatively right. in life. It was only like a, a few years ago, probably. But that is a, that is just an all-time great movie. Um, it, I would say the other favourites would be Miss Congeniality. Was, I remember seeing that in the cinema. I remember going to the cinema for that one. Um, while you were sleeping, I was reminded earlier of um, Infamous, the film she did with Toby Jones about Capote. And, you know, she's just had such an incredible career. While You Were Sleeping is a film that me and, um, and that's a very, very, obviously a very different kind of movie from this, but is it's a perfect rom-com mm. in a lot of ways. And, uh, we, you know, we watched that. We watched, that's a Christmas movie in our house. So we kind of rewatch that every year, which will be, you know, it was weirder watching it last year and being like, oh, I've worked with this person now. That's cool. My friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, I still, everyone, she encourages you to call her Sandy and I right. would do that. And then if I was talking to any of my friends at home and I say Sandy, they're like, oh, Sandy, is it? It's like, <laughs> yes, I know. It sounds weird, but I, she's asked me to. You, you mentioned uh, everyone is sort of the hero of their own story. Mm. Uh, and, and for Abigail Fairfax, that's maybe the case. But from everyone else's perspective, he is a really fun, like all out cackling, waving yeah. a gun around sort of villain. <laughs> yeah. Was it fun for you to get to play that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, I think there's when you there's you know there's a rich tradition of uh, English actors being the bad guys in American movies, and so there's kind of uh, I think when you watch those kind of performances, you know, uh, like there's a kind of a, a Tim Curry or Alan Cumming, like these people who are like great at playing bad guys who seem to really revel in it. And I I think there is something about watching those actors where you, the theme is because I'm a very different actor from from both of those people, um, but the the theme is that you see how much they are enjoying it. Um, and I think that was the thing for me is, yeah, I, I was nervous going in because I was working with Sandy and Channing and all that. But I was like, no, you've got to just go in and play and have fun and enjoy being this insane person. Um, and yeah, it was, it's, uh, there was no like specific kind of influences or, or people that I drew from, but I think generally the kind of, it's a bit of a rite of passage playing, being the English bad guy in something now. Yeah, and of course you must have grown up around so many amazing like villain performances as well. Just thinking throughout the Potter films, obviously, yeah, Alan, Rick Rafe, and, yeah, 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 and, and, and Rafe yeah. finds and, and Alan and, is. I mean, I watched Die Hard again not long ago, and it's the just the wit of his character, how funny it is, how throwaway some of the lines are. Like, it's uh, yeah. I mean, that's again another kind of all time great performance in that film. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned one of the things that made you kind of want to get involved in this was revisiting The Mummy. And that was yeah. something, as I was watching it, it just must be so much fun to get onto those like big ancient tomb sets uh, with vines everywhere and contraptions. And I mean, for me, uh, obviously we had very different childhoods, but I don't know if <laughs> among all the Potter stuff, you ended up watching Jungle Run on ITV, oh, no. the like, adventure show. It's no, like a kid's was that a game little bit show. like Crystal May? It was like Crystal May, okay. but just the jungle yes. for kids. Okay, so cool. all the sets looked like that. that. Is vaguely familiar actually yeah i mean yeah it does there's definitely some like childhood wish fulfillment that especially even though like i was a child on those amazing sets but i still viewed them and treated them sometimes like a sort of playground like it was just somewhere <laughs> cool to run around um and so I, I still think i have a bit of that attitude when i walk onto those kind of sets but also with this one like it was 
that you know other than the tomb at the end there's almost no sets in the whole thing like the whole thing we filmed in the jungle and i do think you get you can you just sense it you feel it differently when the camera pulls out and you're seeing channing and sandy in the jungle rather than on what you can probably tell is a, a soundstage somewhere in la like you you feel the magnitude of the place more it's, yeah we were very lucky to get to shoot in the dominican republic yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, so about a year ago from now, you were on the cover of Empire Magazine. Oh, yeah. Uh, along with Elijah Wood, it was yes. a big 20th, well, 20th century, 20th anniversary blowout for, for Potter and for Lord of the Rings. Yeah. You guys uh, got together and, and had a good old chat together. Yeah, and uh, I believe part of that, you guys were like, let's meet up. Let's do this in person. Has that had a chance it to happen not yet? We, I've emailed, we have emailed, but we have not actually connected in person at some point, but it will happen. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident in that. I, I genuinely like, that was such a, it was such a nice, oddly cathartic conversation. <laughs> that I feel like at some point we will meet in person. Yeah. Oh, well, you have to let us know when you do finally yes, well, if you, if uh, we get do, that meeting. Yeah. And if we ever make a movie together, that's Empire needs to get 10%. Uh, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> yes, his commission. Please. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then obviously later in the year, you had a big anniversary reunion. Yeah. Uh, I, like many people, I'm sure, spent New Year's Day slightly hungover, curled up on the sofa watching the uh, Return to Hogwarts anniversary yeah. special. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask, obviously, that even a few months removed from that mm. now, how do you feel about that reunion? I imagine there was a lot of emotions involved for kind of taking the decision even just to go back and to kind of re-engage with that world a bit more yeah um so how are you feeling it on it now a couple of months later it was it was really lovely like i'm really really glad we did it um you know it's it is double-edged going back um because you you know and i don't think i would have honestly if they'd done like a five-year anniversary which would have been silly but if they had done that then I'm not sure I would have been able to go. It would have been a different feeling thing. I think the place I'm at in my life allowed me to sort of feel good to to go back. And it was honestly great. Like having, there is something uh, lovely and kind of full circle about having adult conversations with people that you had only had child children's conversations with yes. before. Um, that was really, really cool. Like particularly with like Helena and Chris Columbus and Gary, but then also people like the the Phelps twins, that was an interesting one because, you know, we, we were very friendly on the films, but they were older. They were sort of, I was 11 when we started, they were 14 or 15. And at that age, like that is a massive gulf in, yeah. in, in age. And now like we're all just men in our thirties and it's sort of <laughs> that, that age difference flattens out in a really nice way. And yeah, it was just lovely to, like, it was lovely to see everybody and see how everybody has kind of come out okay. Like it's, there was something really made me really proud actually of all of us. Yeah, it, it was a really lovely watch, and especially like you said, the combinations of people. Yeah. Like to see you and obviously Rupert and Emma get together was wonderful, but seeing you talking with Helena and and with Gary Oldman uh, like was my, such a my, treat. My, my my thing that I'd written for Helena that I'd totally forgotten about, where I like <laughs> wrote something vaguely flirty on a photo. For I was like, wow, I was a I was a confidence eighteen year old. <laughs> And has anything kind of come off the back of, of that reunion special? Have there been more meetups? Have you guys got a WhatsApp group or something now? I mean, just now? more chatting, but not yeah. like, but there's definitely, uh, you know, I think it, it it reignited a few of our kind of, uh, you know, conversations that we maybe had like, 
you know, just when you haven't spoken to someone in a while, and it, it, it's, you know, you can feel awkward reaching out to somebody when it's been a while, just because it's been a while. And actually that, you know, that event brought us back together. And I feel like there's been, uh, you know, it's made communication sort of start just flowing again, which is, which is very nice. Yeah, that's lovely. Uh, and obviously that was the 20th anniversary of Philosopher's Stone. Yeah. And you'll have talked about that film so much, but it's now 2022, which yeah. means it's the 20th anniversary of, of Chamber of Secrets. Chamber of Secrets, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, great. We've got a 20 year um, anniversary every year for the next yes. 10 years. Uh, I mean, what what are your memories of that film? Because the, the first film, obviously, you shot for about nine months. So you, you'd done it for the, a long time yeah, at that point. Yeah, the first film was actually, yeah, the first one was 11. The second film was right. just under that, was like nine or 10. But we did two months of shooting that they didn't count as principal photography. Right. <laughs> so they when we were doing the flying car stuff. So my, my memories of that film are really the flying car sequence, me and Rupert being in the Ford Anglia for, for about two months. Um the Chamber of Secrets set is still one of the coolest sets I've ever been on. It was massive and it was real and I got to really climb that thing at the end. And I remember Ken Branner, you know, yes. Ken was was in that one and was so charming and and actually like really naughty with the younger actors in terms of like making us laugh. And like he could tell, like there would be scenes where we'd be trying not to laugh and Ken would like see that and be like, oh, I'm going to get you to go. <laughs> um, but it was very, very funny and sweet. Um, and... Yeah, and and working with Chris, I mean, I remember the the moment on the second film where Chris came in and said that he wouldn't be doing any more films, and he was, and he came in to talk to us about that. And you know, I remember being pretty like, "Whoa, what happens now?" Um, you know, so um, yeah, but no, that was a really that was a very very fun one. Still, yeah. yeah. And the, at least that trade off then was was Chris is gone, and that yeah. must have been a really hard transition. But Alfonso Cuaron, yeah, incredible. we then got Alfonso Cuaron to come in and, and direct the third Harry Potter, <laughs> which was, I, I, you know, I don't think, um, you know, now by the sort of standards of modern cinema, that decision just looks like very smart and good. At the time, I think we can forget how like absolutely left field that choice seemed, and sure, the guy who yeah. just done Itumamo Tembien. Um, so that's a you know that was. A, but again, one of the decisions that our producer David Hayman made that really uh, shaped the next few years of the series and kind of allowed us to go to a darker place. Yeah. Speaking of directors, uh, I, I re-listened to your Desert Island Discs the oh, other yeah. day, which is one of my favourite Desert oh, Island cool. Discs. Thank we'll you. come to this in a sec, partly because you picked loads of music that I really like oh, as great. well. Awesome. Um, but one thing you. <laughs> Oh. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Cup of tea. You name that you. Cup of yeah. tea on the floor. Um, but the there was something you said in the episode, which is that ideally you'd love to to direct someday and, and write something. Mm. Uh, has anything moved forward on that front? Do you have an idea of what that project would be? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I've got an idea uh, for something that I would like that I have written um, wow. and that I'm I'm hopefully going to direct. It will be at least in a couple of years' time because the next eighteen months, at least, are kind of all pretty much accounted for already. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really want to direct. It's it, you know. People always say, write what you know. I've had a very unrelatable life, um, so <laughs> I don't want to write that. Um, but I, I have found a way of writing something that is kind of um, connected to the film industry, and uh, you know about uh, about that. Um, so yeah, hopefully in a few years it'll it'll come out. <laughs> is that something you'd look to star in as well? No. Obviously, sometimes when people no, do that, they I, go straight I, in. And I don't want to. I don't want to act and direct. I would like to just direct yeah. um, because. For two reasons, partly because I've never done it before and I wouldn't want to be thinking about both those things uh, at the same time. But more practically, because when you direct a film, you have to watch that film a thousand times afterwards in the edit. And I no part of me want to w- wants to watch my face that much. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll skip that. 
But yeah, your Desert Island Discs episode was oh, cool. fantastic. I'm a huge fan of the Hold Steady, oh. huge Pixies fan. You made some incredible choices there. The Hold Steady are so good. So good. They are just one of the, I think they're a really, really, I think they're one of the best bands of the last 20 years and I think they're really underrated. Yeah. Completely. And for me, like my older brother and sister were the people who kind of were instrumental in, in me discovering those bands. My brother got a copy of Boys and Girls in America when I was probably about, I don't know, 13, 14. Yeah. It blew my mind. Uh, my sister had Pixies albums. We had a tape in the car that was loads of pixie cool. songs i mean you've got cool siblings they had <laughs> I, good taste I do. yeah but who were those people for you who were the people who kind of influenced your music taste was there anyone on the potter set who yeah. handed you that tape and said listen to this it's going to blow your mind so it was um a combination of my dad whose um musical taste runs the gamut from like mark boland t-rex and david bowie to sondheim and uh rodgers and hammerstein and show tunes um and then my driver on Potter was a chap called Peter Harvey, who he basically one day introduced me, to, like over the course of the first two films, introduced me to the Beatles, uh, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, Pink Floyd, the Who, um, a lot of the great sort of 60s and 70s bands. Uh, and then my dresser on Potter was an old punk called uh, Will Stegall, who he got me into the Sex Pistols and um, uh, Buzzcocks, Clash, The Damned, anything. Um, and then... It was the first like modern music that I got into was like probably like for a lot of us was Is This It by The Strokes. Um, and I remember the uh, uh, hairdresser on the third Harry Potter movie called Tracy uh, gave me a copy of that album for the first time. I was like, what is this? Because before that, I'd really just been listening to like old punk music and hadn't really, I'd been like, all oh, modern music's rubbish. Um, and then I was like, oh no, okay, hold on, this band's great. Um, so yeah, that was really the start of of my, my journey into liking indie music. <laughs> and, uh, we at Empire, we are big karaoke people. Oh, are right. you a karaoke person? Yes. And what's your go-to? Um, so I, uh, because I am a white person of a certain age, uh, rap a lot. Yes. Um, and so there's a lot of Eminem. Um, and I do, yeah, I've, I've done some Eminem. Also, my girlfriend and I often duet on... Um, it's all coming back to me now, the Celine Dion song. Nice. Um, because it's, you know, fully over the top and operatic. Also features, when you really look at the lyrics of that song, it is mental. They're, they're <laughs> talking about love and their relationship and they're like, uh, it was more than any laws allow wow. is a line in that song. Which like, what were they doing? <laughs> and, yeah. Um, Crossing some boundaries there. Yeah, maybe. clearly. It's yeah. a very edgy song. And your next project, the next thing we're going to see you in, is a musical project, the Weird Al Yankovic movie, yeah. which, what a phrase to say. I know. Uh, and imagine uh, that's kind of crazy for you to be in. One of the things that I love about that is we just got the first look image of you sort of in in, in the wig yeah, with the, the accordion. accordion. Yeah. Um, and I love the amount of like crazy Daniel Radcliffe images that exist because of your films. And yeah. I wonder, do you make choices because of that? Like the, the, the image of you for Trainwreck in the middle of New York uh, with yes. all the dogs, yeah. the guns akimbo images with, yeah. the, with the bear slippers on and guns attached to your hands no, again i mean two of those the reason i can tell you that we absolutely don't plan those is because two of those the most famous versions of the images are paparazzi shots they're not like <laughs> still shops we took at all um so no i think i'm just like uh once i think one of the best things you can do is getting a reputation for being weird or liking weird things because weird sort of begets weird and you get like as soon as you know you do something like horns the guys who make swiss army man are like oh, okay maybe he's into that and then people see swiss army man and they're like oh guns akimbo so it's sort of one thing leads to another and it keeps meaning i get to do random crazy stuff which i'm always very happy with um but yeah the al yankovic movie is is one of the most 
uh, fun. I will be genuinely heartbroken if it's not as good as I want it to be because it's the most, it's the most, one of the most fun things I've ever shot. It was unbelievably fast. It was shot so quickly that it kind of makes me go, what are we doing on other films? <laughs> um, but it was, uh, yeah, they, it was a testament to being prepared and our amazing director, Eric Appel. And um, yeah, it was, it's, I can't wait for people to see it. It'll be a while, but I can't wait. Just before I let you go, you mentioned Swiss Army Man there. Incredible film. I love that film so much. Have you had a chance to see everything everywhere I'm all at once? I'm so yet? excited. Yeah. It's the best. I they they did at one point they were I, there was they were trying to get me in for it and I was doing a really? play so I could not be there which I am still gutted about. Um but they are you know they they are some of the people that I they are probably the only people um, in the world that I would say yes to doing a movie of theirs without even saying the script. Like I, if they want me in something, I know that it will be for a reason and that they have found, if they're making something, it's because they have found something amazing to make. Um, so yeah, I would, I would, uh, follow those guys to the ends of the earth. Really? Me too. I will be there. I'll be in the audience they're watching. So good. I'll be they're there. So good. Well, Daniel Radcliffe, it's been such a joy having Thank you on you the podcast. Much. Thank you for joining us. No Real pleasure. Perfect. Thank you so much. Film. Cheers. Man. Thank you. All right, so that was Daniel Radcliffe, and we will be reviewing The Lost City on next week's show. It is out on Wednesday, folks. It opens in this country on Wednesday, April 13th, so you may be able to see it before we talk about it on next week's show. Ben, how was he? Did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy your experience with Daniel Radcliffe? I did. He was a delight. He was very, very lovely and thoughtful in his answers, and we had fun. I mean, he is somebody who's had an insane career post Harry Potter, all of the choices that he's made, the projects that he's worked on. Um, so to be able to get to kind of, we, we briefly brought up Swiss Army Man at the end there and um, did get into some Potter stuff, obviously with the reunion last year and we talked a bit of Chamber of Secrets, uh, but also his work in, in The Lost City is really fun. He's just getting to play like a big, it's just a classic sort of British smarmy villain role and it's nice to see him in that mode. So mm. he was mm. uh, on delightful form, super happy. He's to a talk. good guy. He's a good egg. He's a good guy. Absolutely. Um, so yes. All right. Fantastic. Good stuff. So that was Daniel Radcliffe. Now let's delve deep into the week's movie news. Uh, is there any? <laughs> I think we should all take a moment to talk about Marcel the Shell. We should, because shouldn't we? that, of all the things that are happening in the world at the moment, I can't tell you how much I needed to see the trailer for Marcel the Shell with shoes on, which may be, and I don't think I understand this, the greatest achievement in cinema. Uh, and I appreciate I use that a lot, most recently for Moonfall. But in this case, I probably really mean it. Um, so this is this is a like a feature adaptation of the animated short. It's Dean Fleischer Camp's film. And it's essentially a heart string pulling documentary where he they they interview Marcel, who is a shell mm-hmm. with shoes on, and Marcel wants to find his family. What? Yeah, he's a he's a shell he's with a like shell. one eye. Like I'll show yeah, you a picture. Like, a shell. That's, that's like, like me like right now. I'm a shell of a man. Well, you, a little yeah. bit, but no, this but is actually a shell of a shell. Yeah, he's a, he's, he's a, a shell of a shell, and he got, wants to find his family. And he's got little legs with little shoes on, and and he's looking. He has been raised by a granny, but he's looking for his parents, yeah. and um, you know, en- enlist the help of like national TV and that's so right. On. And it's just very charming looking, unbelievably adorable. That would also be not incorrect. Yeah, oh. seems to say things that are naive and yet maybe hint at universal truths. Yeah. in a very simple. This was really way. funny. A bit like the Empire podcast. A bit very like much. the Empire podcast. But this is yeah, this is an animation from A twenty four, the yeah. super duper cool um, 
you know, Oscar baiting. The film uh, four, studio. if you will. The film four of the, the US. States. Yeah, yeah, you were you were quite right. And um and so that's exciting in itself to see what yeah. they do with an animation. There is a bit where the shell crawls onto a keyboard with his little feet, his little shoes, and he types in on the keyboard by jumping on them, Googles how to find your family. Yeah. Oh, oh. no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very sweet. It's very cute. It's very, very sweet. You should do a podcast and he'd find that his family was right in front of him all along. Oh. Oh, bless. Well, do you mean the people in the studio next door? Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean Mark Goodyear, <laughs> principally. <laughs> Who is in the studio next to us right now? That's not just a random reference. I plucked that out of the air. Uh, and this is uh, Jenny Slade's involved. Yeah. So she co-created it with Dean Fleischer Camp. Um, according to this article. She's the voice of Marcel. Is she? Yeah. Okay. She's the voice Good. of Marcel. Isabella Rossellini is in it as well. <laughs> they have a pet lint called Alan. All right, I'm on board. <laughs> I haven't seen the trailer, but yes. Okay. It's fantastic. I mean, Everyone it does, should watch it. It does look exactly like what you think an A24 kids movie yeah. is going to look like. <laughs> if, if A24 had existed when uh, Spike Jones made Where the Wild Things Are, it feels like that would have yeah, been the first 100%. A24 kids movie. Um, you know, a bit of light whimsy mixed with some moderate existentialism seems to be the vibe there. Mm. Sounds good to me. All right. Anything else? There was also news of The Crow. So Bill yes. Skarsgård is to play The Crow yeah. now with uh, Rupert Sanders uh, directing. Um, friend of the podcast, Corin Hardy, did mm-hmm. a very nice, yeah. um, uh, you know, best of luck uh, message. He's to tried them. to get this done for so he long. He tried to get. It. I'm I'm heartbroken for him, but mm. I'm pleased that it's it's going ahead. Um, I, you know, hopefully they, well, they can do something awesome well, with it. <laughs> I mean, we've well, been we, here we before. think yes. It seems to once <laughs> again be moving. We seems it seems to once again be moving. So hopefully, you know, somebody gets further with it this time. But. Um, but yeah, I would have loved to see uh, Corin's version just because he's been such a huge fan of the character all his life. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I so Rupert Sanders is a is a fine director, but I know how invested Corin is personally in this, and how much The Crow was an obsession for him. And uh, uh, it came so close; they were they were building yeah. sets. That's right yeah. in Wales, and uh, it never it never quite got together. Uh, but yes, Bill Skarsgård, uh, FKA Twigs. And Rupert Sanders making the crow, mm-hmm. um, I mean, so yeah, good could lineup. could work out could work very out. nicely. Speaking of that that version of the crow, though, mm. um, he, it was going to star Jason Momoa. Yes, at one point. Um, and he has been talking this week about his Fast Ten villain, who you'll be amazed to know. He says is ornery. Yeah. And misunderstood. Yeah. Oh. I reckon he'll end up a member of the family. Guys. Oh, almost certainly. Mm. <laughs> Genuine question: What does ornery mean? Just like grumpy, like cross, like um, a bit difficult. Like that. You watch the Fast 10 and you go, I like Jason Momoa. I like movies of Vin Diesel, but sorry guys, Fast and Furious, not a Western. Western. No. That's ordinary. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. Well, do you think it was meant horny? No, for some reason it was just bringing to mind like, like owlish. What's what's like bovine, but for owls? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Owl-like? Yeah. But then I couldn't imagine that being related to yeah, Jason Momoa in any way. With owl. It essentially means just grumpy. But, yeah. but in a yeah. nice way, like not like a gr- like just grumpy within yourself rather than necessarily aggressively sort of grumpy. Tacitly. I don't know. I, I think there can be some, some aggression. You know, speaking of someone who is regularly ornery, I, I like to think that it's quite a broad term. <laughs> I don't think you're very owl-like at all, Jason. No, thank you, thank you. <laughs> My Although head does turn all the way around. <laughs> Thank you. And we should stop doing that. It's very, very creepy. <laughs> you think it's owl? We're all getting like exorcist. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's fine. He does vomit pea soup at everybody as well. Um, 
<laughs> but that's yeah. why we love him. We've got, we we accept these things about James. If you could vomit something else, if you could vomit tomato soup at me, that'd be great because I haven't eaten. I'm feeling quite weak. But I'm not sure that's the preferred delivery method of Heinz tomato soup. But you know, I love it. Which, as we all know, is the only correct tomato. Soup. It is the only correct oh. tomato soup, even though it doesn't taste anything like tomatoes, and that's what makes it so great because tomatoes mm. are the devil's fruit. See, I'm, I'm, I don't usually align with Jimbo on food, but I kind of align with him on this a little bit. Ketchup, yes. Yes. Soup, yes. Tomato pasta sauce, yes. Yes. But tomatoes, hard no. no. I mean, I'll have watery and disgusting. You're all watery. I knew you <laughs> no, I like tomatoes. I can, but my sister is with you. But you, you, you'll can, is she? I'll, I'll keep all the not literally. She's very small. I will keep all the tomatoes. You'll keep you'll all the tomatoes. The we'll have the soup. Mm. Yeah. Oh, you see, mushrooms are great. No, mushrooms, mushrooms, are, no. mushrooms are devil's no. fungus. No, no. yeah, absolutely. I love a mushroom. Especially now we know they talk to each other. Uh. No, 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 no. No, yes. Once you see uh, in the earth. My mycelial networks, yeah. and it's yeah. not, it's not like sci-fi bullshit. They think no, that's they a thing. It's like yeah. a recent-ish discovery of underground networks of fungus. You know I do I, I do yell black that. alert every time I eat a mushroom. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite distracting in the office. <laughs> I don't mind the mycelial networks. I think it's nice that the trees get to have a chat with each other. Yeah. And did you know that there are there's such a thing as albino trees, and that they are supported by other trees in the forest because obviously they can photosynthesize, so they have well, to get nutrients from other trees, and that's like well, like they have a support network, literally. Mm. Yeah, really. Yeah, that's. Did you um? Do you ever watch the OA on Netflix, which is fabulous? And you Not should. the meaning to, but the Internet of Trees. Is a thing. It's a real o- thing. As well as Old Night, the Psychic Octopus, there is also an Internet of Trees. What this is this is the same Psychic Octopus that predicted the World Cup draw? No, that was Paul. Okay, he died. <laughs> he did. didn't see that coming, did he? Yeah. <laughs> this is how I find out. Yeah, Paul, Paul the died. Octopus. Yeah, he died. Your octopus friend. Yeah, I'm afraid so. They but have brains in their arms, and they have sorry, a lot what? of arms. octopodes. They have they have they have brains in their arms. It's true. Huh. Well, they is is it one of the, well? This is like lobsters having two brains because you know otherwise what? there's yeah lobsters have two brains. So this whole thing where you can put a lobster out of its misery by you know <laughs> can you tell us the movie news this week? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so people say you know yeah. before you boil a lobster, you can put a spike through its head and then oh. that'll put it out of its misery. Except it won't because it has another brain, so it's oh. still going to fail. What, like feel a backup pain. brain? Yeah, yeah, it does. In the same <laughs> way, oh. Diplodocus used to have two brains, right, or Brontosaurus, whatever. You think it was Steve Martin? <laughs> I am. He was a man. That's really, yeah, yeah, I do make that mistake a lot. I mix him up with... Where did, 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 where did the Diplodocus keep its second brain? Down its spine. In a pouch. Down its spine? Yeah. Down its spine. Down you're spine. Making, it sorry, so you're making this up. I'm I not. suspect you might be. Making I don't this up. think I'm making this up. Let's look at it. Because I know o- 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 uh, octopuses have, have, uh, have like a, like cerebral whatever it is. They have brain type stuff in their, in their tentacles. <laughs> wow, what an amazing sentence. Yeah. <laughs> brain type stuff. Cerebral, <laughs> cerebral <laughs> things. Brain type stuff. <laughs> brain type stuff. <laughs> They do. They Where do you do. keep uh, your brain? Wait, no, okay, hang on, oh, hang on, hang on. Wait. Live backtracking. Hang on. It's a popular myth, apparently. So, <laughs> so there look up, was look up the octopus thing. There was this idea that they had to have two brains because it would have been too, um, too far for the for the message to get to their legs. Otherwise. They just thought it was too long to yeah, have one brain. Essentially, and so uh, so scientists hypothesized that they had a, a, an a posteriori brain, but apparently it's wrong, and there's a different mystery behind it. Mine is correct. But okay. lobsters do have two brains. Yeah. Well, it, it, the, in addition to the central brain, the dogs the can look have, up. They can look up. <laughs> uh, octopuses have separate mini brains at the base of each of their eight tentacles. So they have nine brains 
uh, and they put them to incredibly adept use, which is why they're, they're cunning, very smart. It's why they're very Mission Impossible esque mm. in the way that they can do kind of crazy shit. Yeah, they can figure shit out. Mm. That's why they can predict the World Cup draw. Yeah. Have you heard the stories about like uh, some <laughs> like some uh, aquarium keeper was studying at his desk once, and suddenly a bad fish <laughs> lands on the de- desk next to him, and he turns around, and one of the octopuses is climbing back into its tank having just thrown the bad wow. fish at him in disgust because it wasn't willing to put up with bad <laughs> fish being delivered. That is wow. very Finding Dory of it. Isn't just to it? Br- try and bring this back to films in some way, I lo- the, the octopus in Finding yeah. Dory oh, so is good. incredible. The way it moves, so so great. So great. Also, we, yeah, we probably shouldn't eat octopi. And also, I think my favorite way to prepare oh, a lobster the octopi. Um, <laughs> is just to release it into the sea and let it have a nice life. I agree. It, they, basically, there's a fantastic, fantastic um, article, very, very long article called Consider the Lobster, written by David the Foster what? Wallace. Um, he was sent to cover the main lobster festival and came back with this enormous treatise on he the ethics. He found his lobster. I guess, kind of. Anyway, but came back with this enormous treatise on the eating of lobsters, and it's fascinating, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. So, Consider the Lobster. Seriously, you'll thank consider me Consider its claws, each part of the octopus. <laughs> Obeys the laws. I don't know. <laughs> Is there any movie news this week? Oh, yeah. Um, we probably should uh, tie a couple of things up. So um, you may have noticed that there was a Will Smith story last week. I'm not sure if you're I aware of it. I did notice that. Yeah. That's it's, right. Yes. It's pretty obscure, but um, there was an incident at the Oscars, um, uh-huh. apparently, just before he Luckily, no one actor. was watching, so nobody saw. <laughs> I was watching, and I did not know what the hell I was seeing. Yeah. It was, yeah. In, it was wild. Well, Seeing that at three in the, in the morning yeah. when all the other stuff is already happening was a bit of a mind bender. Well, what you were seeing was the precursor to to Will Smith now uh, resigning from the Academy. So yeah. he is no longer a member of the Academy. He will no longer get those award screeners every year, which I'm sure he is yes. caught up about. Um, is he still a bad boy, though? Because oh, bad he's a bad boy for, boy life, for life. for life, yeah. yeah. Light or die. But yes, so he has written a letter of apology and resignation to the Academy, who are still investigating. There may still be further actions against him. What can I do at this point now that he's quit? Well, in theory, they could do lots of things like ban him for life, and they could, in theory, I think, take his Oscar back. But I don't. I don't think they're going to do that. That would look appalling, given that Harvey Weinstein has Oscars, Roman Polanski has Oscars. Like that. That's not going to be. If they have any sense, that's not going to be their approach. I think this will probably be essentially the end of it. But there may still be like a letter of censure or something from them. Does this mean um, he, he can is, never go back to the Oscars? It, it means he won't be invited, I believe, to the Oscars. It, does, it doesn't mean that he can't be nominated or can't win again. He could yeah. go as someone's plus one. Could he, yeah. yeah, he could. He yeah. could. He could go as someone's plus so one. So I think you know, basically it, it maybe shows that he is hopefully taking responsibility a little bit. Mm. Um, but um, I also hope that it doesn't lead to too much more against him because um, I, I don't want them to be disproportionate about something that was not good. I'm not saying it was good, but I, I also think it would be, like I say, crazy to demand his Oscar back or anything like that. Because one thing that I've been reading this week, I'm sure you guys have read it as well, is that there's been some fallout from this with uh, some some studios distancing themselves from Will Smith projects, at least temporarily. Uh, Apple, of course, he's already made uh, a massive drama about slavery called Emancipation with Antoine Fuqua, uh, which was going to be Apple's big Oscar push thing uh, for for next year, and I, no one knows exactly what's going to happen with that. I yeah, I honestly I think it'll just have blown over by by the time 
you know, the Oscar season rolls around again. Um, he may not be able to go up necessarily for best actor, but this shouldn't affect mm. the chances of the film. But people are saying that, you know, a bright sequel uh, is now being uh, delayed at Netflix. So well, there has a been a positive. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Every cloud and all that. Um, and, the, you know, the Bad Boys 4 may be delayed or may not happen at all. And it, some people are kind of giving him a bit of a swerve and he's becoming a little persona non grata. And I, feel I would hope that's, that's temporary. That's a bit much, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. he behaved like a bit of a bell end, but people have done a lot worse and still get employment in yeah. Hollywood. Yeah. So mm-hmm. come on, let's have a little perspective. And maybe yeah. we can just wait for everything to settle. It's it's a sort of complex thing. There's many many sides mm. to it. Let it just let it just sit for a while. Let's just and then... go to the Winchester. over. Who was it? Who produced that film? Uh, oh, Channel Film Four. Film 4. The A24 yeah. of the UK. <laughs> That's right. Is there anything else? Uh, news-wise, no, but I've got a fact for you if you want another fact. Sure, why not? Okay, here's a fact. And this kind of blew my mind when it came earlier this week. The University of Oxford is older than the Aztec Empire. Yeah, well, you know. Because Oxford was founded in 1096 and the Oz. Aztec Empire was not founded until 1325. Helione here went to the University of Oxford. In, in 1096, which in is 1096, not, not a lot of people yeah. know that. No, yeah. No. Um, there is, when you get into like timelines like this worldwide, you get some really fascinating, fascinating stuff. There, It would be possible, for example, to have, I think, a samurai, a cowboy and a... There's a, there's a whole lineup of weird people you wouldn't expect to be living at the same time that Paul actually Rudd. did. <laughs> <laughs> Paul and Keanu Reeves could actually team yeah. up and go on a caper. Make yeah. that movie. Yeah. Make that movie. But it, but it is, oh, an aging pirate. You could have an aging pirate, a samurai and a cowboy. Why does a pirate have to be aging? Because the, 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 high, the height of piracy had passed All right, quite a long okay. time ago. Do, no, 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 do, no, 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 do, no, 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 <laughs> I'm sure I'm right. How are you old enough to remember this? Because it's on literally every DVD ever made and okay, you couldn't Zuma. skip it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I don't know what's happening anymore. Anyway, um, the point but, is history okay. is weird and yeah, it's worth it reading about. Did you know that um, Cleopatra was closer in time to us than to the building of the pyramids? That's because she's coming at you. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Shout out to my countrywoman there. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. What's the one thing you know about Cleopatra? <laughs> She's coming at so you. Just... <laughs> I was working on something about if that's the size of a needle, you should see the size of her knitting, but it didn't quite work. No, it didn't. But I, so I held back from it, but James just went straight, straight ahead. Yeah. James enters the speed force and just goes, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> Using his cerebral thing to do some brain type stuff. Did you know that James has 10 tiny brains at the end of each one of his fingers? It's true. It is actually true. Oh, my word. Do you know is- Olympic gold medals are made mostly of silver? <laughs> It's actually true. Well, this has turned into No Such Thing as a Fish. <laughs> a really bad knockoff of No Such Thing as a Fish. Chris Evans, Scarlett Johansson Hello. are going to star in a movie called Project Artemis that will be directed by Jason Bateman. Huh. And it's written by Rose Gilroy, who is the daughter of Dan Gilroy and Rene Russo. Hmm. So there you go. Do we know anything about it? No. Yeah. Okay. Will it be better than Hotel Artemis? Who knows? I like that movie. Yeah. Good movie. Yeah, it's hmm. okay. 
solid. And also, uh, The Guest 2 is a musical. Well, The, the Guest 2 is a soundtrack. It was on the uh, on April Fool's Day, but not on April Fool's. They released a soundtrack to The Guest 2, a sequel to Adam Wingard's film. The sequel itself, the film, does not exist. The soundtrack does, including a, a song on there by Adam Wingard himself. And yeah, there is some jazzy artwork with Dan Stevens wearing a cowboy hat and Michael Monroe looking a bit... Uh, sort of Terminator 2 Sarah Connor uh, and some weird like three-eyed skull cult Uh, but for now all that exists is the music there are song names that kind of hint at what the plot of the guest 2 would theoretically be be our guest be our guest Dan Stevens with a cowboy hat and he's killing all the people he came back from war and then he went into the family (laughs) and he killed a bunch of people (laughs) wow you've been learning your scansion from Chris haven't you it's good I have I have some actual movie news you motherfuckers bring it Robert Downey Jr. is going to executive produce not one but apparently two Sherlock Holmes TV shows for, uh, I believe, HBO Max. So is this a definite no to Sherlock Holmes 3? It seems that the article I read says that Sherlock Holmes 3 has been so long a development that they've missed a window, essentially. So they they can't decide the best way to advance with that. So they've they've decided to make two Sherlock Holmes TV shows instead. Now, they don't know yet whether he's going to be playing Sherlock Holmes in either of these shows. Mm. But that's potentially exciting. Yeah, and it feels like there's loads of murder mystery stuff around at the moment. Everything's a murder mystery. Obviously, we had Death on the Nile, uh, The After Party, Scream is a murder mystery. Only Murders in the Building. Only Murders in the Building, Werewolves Within, Knives Out 2 is coming this year. It feels like... Is it it because, I mean, for two reasons. First of all, culturally speaking, you know, we've all spent a lot of time in enclosed spaces with an enclosed group of people. And second of all, practically speaking, you can make murder mysteries right now uh, yeah. because a locked room is, you know. Essentially, one of the movies we're talking about this week is a, is a murder mystery. Mm. Uh, we'll get on to that in a second. Uh, in fact, right now. Hurrah! Because that's it for the movie news section. Uh, we're excited about the idea, aren't we, of uh, more Sherlock Holmes on the TV. That's never worked before. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe this one will work. Um, I liked both of those Sherlock Holmes movies that Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law made with, with Guy Ritchie. I don't know if I'm alone in that. They were okay. Okay. Anywho, on to the review section now, on to the movies that were out this week in the multiplex and, of course, the ones you can also see on your sofaplex. There's only one place to start, and that is with Fantastic Beasts, the Secrets of, Secrets Dumbledore. of Dumbledore. That is that is absolutely correct. Not the crimes of Grindelwald or, what was the first one called? And where to find them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so this is the technically... 11th movie in the what's it world wizarding Wizarding world wizarding Wizarding world World? okay Um, and this sees Dumbledore and Newt Scamander and all their pals that you remember from the first two Wizarding (laughs) World Fantastic Beasts movies come back and find more Fantastic Beasts in interesting places I'm guessing okay full disclosure I haven't seen this film (laughs) Uh, here's the thing I've kind of tapped out of this franchise a little bit Uh, I didn't like either of the Fantastic Beasts movies I'm not on board with David Yates as director of these films. I think that the the Potter franchise got progressively worse as it went on, and I loved the books. Hmm. Ben, in particular, as the big Potter fan here, 
should I get back on board with this movie? If you want to, yes. I mean, there is so, so much baggage here and I feel that baggage very heavily as somebody who grew up, as you just heard in that Daniel Radcliffe interview, Mm. um, I grew up at peak Harry Potter age. It was like... It wasn't even just like my favorite thing growing up. It was just everywhere. It, it was, was just the thing. The yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, and I love that world so much. It feels like home in a lot of ways, sort of on the page and on the screen. And yet, even in the kind of gap between Crimes of Grindelwald and now, that film was hugely disappointing to me. I remember watching that film and my heart sinking and then leaving the screening and turning on my phone and Stan Lee had died. And I felt like my whole childhood had just died in an instant. <laughs> um but in the years since that film came out and, and did the, the weakest box office of any Potter film and the weakest reviews of any sort of Wizarding World movie, um, th- just to briefly touch on the J.K. Rowling situation, obviously J.K. Rowling is still active in this franchise. She is still sort of, it's it's not a, a past work. This mm-hmm. is very much present work from her, this time co-scripting with Steve Clovis, who... Um, uh, was the predominant adapter of the Harry Potter books. He didn't do the fifth one, but he did all the others, all the other screenplays. So the the J.K. Rowling situation has amped up massively in a way that I personally significantly disagree with her comments on gender and with the way that she has kind of conducted herself in, in kind of um, putting those across. Uh, but at the same time, there still is a lot of charm in this film. I think for me, this is quite a big step up from The Crimes of Grindelwald, which Very I did so. rewatch recently and just reiterated how much of a mess that film is. It's very bleak and very dark and kind of nothing really happens mm-hmm. and there's not very much action. This one still has moments of like surprising darkness in it, but it is a sprightlier, more adventurous film definitely with more action, definitely with more charm that kind of weaves in the beastiness and the sort of rising World War II Grindelwald gonna try and... He's basically a wizard supremacist who wants to kind of take over the muggle world. Um, So for me, it kind of balances those two things neatly. So as kind of with last time, Grindelwald is out there doing his thing. He is gaining ground. His political views are gaining traction. And uh, he is basically making a bid for political legitimacy. Uh, And Dumbledore is having to kind of work against that. But because of the blood pact they made uh, when they were younger and in love, they can't really like fight against each other. They They can't can't go go against against each other directly. So this is why you get people like Newt coming in, obviously Eddie Redmayne, and also Credence Barebone, played by Ezra Miller. Um, and they're sort of almost being used as the cat's paws to attack each other mm. because because Dumbledore and Grindelwald, who's now Matt Mickelson, we should mention. Um, because he was played by Johnny Depp previously. Because he was played by Johnny Depp, yeah. yeah. I, oh, but like that is, a, that is also a massive step up. Johnny Depp was playing him as a weirdo and... And Mads Mikkelsen pl- plays him as a zealot yeah. and, and a political so leader. And it is so much better because there's actually a sense that this guy is someone to be reckoned with now, I felt like. And there is so much more chemistry between so Mads Mikkelsen more. and Jude Law, who I think Jude Law is still like one of the best things about these films as Dumbledore. I think he's brilliant uh, in this role. And there's scenes well, very early on between him and Grindelwald that just has more of that spark and that chemistry than the entire last film. Oh yeah, And that's kind of what you need because it's playing upon the fact that these guys can't 
fight against each other because of the history that they have together and how they kind of move beyond that. And as Helen says, Dumbledore having to concoct a plan. It's like a spy thriller. Everybody has their own little bit of a mission, but nobody knows what the whole mission is because Grindelwald can see the future. So uh, they have to kind of confuse him and they cook up this confusing plot that only Dumbledore knows the whole mm. thing. Uh, so you've got Newt's commander, his brother, Newt. Theseus. His name's Newt. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> calls him Rebecca. Grindelwald mostly comes out at night. Mostly. So yes, <laughs> Eddie Redmayne is Newt's commander. Uh, his brother, Theseus, uh, the aura is played by Callum Turner. Is the ship of Theseus in the film at any point? We don't yes and no. <laughs> Surely that's the answer to any ship of Theseus question. Um... Their dynamic is really lovely. Yeah. It's one of my favourite things about the, yeah. these films, uh, the really like brotherly connection that they have. And, and yet, they look like brothers. They it's look great like casting that way. And, and Newt being the sort of like, sort of still awkward, slightly shambling guy, which I like. I like that we have a hero who is not your typical mm. like screen hero, but Theseus basically being who would be the main character in any other series. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the dynamic dynamic they have together is lovely. Uh, you also have Jessica Williams coming into this as uh, Lally Hicks, who is the charms teacher at Ilvermorny School. That's the basically American Hogwarts. Mm. Uh, so she's brought in this time around. You have the return of Dan Fogler as Jacob Kowalski, who is still one of the best things about this franchise. He brings a lot of fun, a lot of charm, gets lots of kind of really funny, witty moments, and he plays them perfectly. Uh, he also gets a wand this time and gets mm. to go to Hogwarts. So there's a real bit of wish fulfillment going on there. They are this ragtag group of heroes who have been pulled together to try and pull off uh, this kind of intentionally confusing mission to, to thwart Grindelwald. Yeah. I think there's there's a lot of good things here. I think that you know you've talked about the uh, magical p politics going on here, and there's a sense more of a of real threat of a of a ticking clock here, which the last two films didn't really have. Just stuff happened in the last two films, um, and and I think that really helps. And I think the character work here is really really good. I think Steve Clovis has done a lot of good for the for this series in kind of retooling it to be a bit more propulsive and a bit more focused because both of the last films I got to the end and I was like okay so so this is okay now we've got to the plot maybe I think in this film I felt like okay yes now we are actually engaging with the plot of this five film series finally in film three it feels like we're getting somewhere um so that's satisfying my my slight problems with it are um I think it leans very heavily on the fascist imagery um, to a degree that is almost parodic by the end. I think that David Yates and his team have a tendency to make... They've amped up the... Gr I watched all three films basically back to back. I watched um, the first two on Sunday night Why? and this one on Monday night because I wanted to refresh my memory because they have not stuck in my memory. And there's almost like a grey wash... It's a confundus charm. Yeah. There's, al there's almost like a grey wash across all three films yeah, and yeah. when you have these incredible production designers and these incredible costumes by Colleen Atwood why are you toning everything down to this degree but this everything is my so looks, drab it looks mm. drab and it looks samey mm. and so even though we've been to uh, New York and Paris and Berlin in these three films as sort of principal you know um, locations just the dimensions of the streets are the same in all of them. The kind of uh, the kind of parts of town they go yeah. to are the same in all of them, and it's just it's a little thing, but I find it incredibly distracting because I'm like these are very 
different cities. They look very, very different. Why have you made them look so similar? It, and you know, it's like the palette has evolved from beige to grey, and that's yeah. that's the leap here. And they they make a concession to, to this in the, the very end of this film, where the location changes is slightly more colourful. But all the way through this, I'm like, I don't understand the aesthetic. But more than that, I don't understand who these films are for. At all. Yeah, because this is not a kid's because, film. Exactly. This has this whole Phantom Menace thing. You talk about taxation of trade routes. This film is about electoral fraud. And it's like, I don't know many kids who find that a particularly enthralling subject. And it just, there's magic in this, but it's not magical. And I enjoyed this film, don't be wrong. And I do think it's the strongest of the three. But it's not a magical film. It's not kid-friendly. But it's not sophisticated enough, really, for adults. So I just don't see where it falls. That, I, and again, I haven't seen this film yet. Uh, but the reason I haven't seen this film is mainly because of what you just described there. This is a franchise about magic that is feeling less and less magical yeah. as it goes mm -hmm. along. And that almost entirely coincides with David Yates arriving as director See, on The Order of the Phoenix. I don't I, hate the last few Potters. I think they're quite I, good. I, I, they're, they all blend into one for me. The palette, <laughs> the palette just it becomes greyer and greyer. There's no sense of magic or wonder or fun uh, I I'm not a, not a fan. I do I do have an issue here with the fact that because these are adult wizards and because they're all quite good and quite powerful adult wizards, it sometimes detracts from the the peril because everybody can do anything. There's no sense of you know any kind of limits on their power. There's no sense of oh I'm tired so I can't cast that charm. Like there's no there's no limits. And when you mm. have no limits, that that detracts from the peril. I think and that and that. I think is a little bit of a problem with all of these films when you watch them back to back. One thing the adult wizards thing does give you though, and is something that we haven't really had for a while in the series, is we get a couple of proper like wizard duels in this true, one in a true. way that is great. Mm -hmm. For me, Order of the Phoenix is actually still very, very, very high up my potter list yeah, my, um, in terms of the films yeah. because it, that duel between uh, Dumbledore and Voldemort in the Ministry at the end is outstanding. And... This is not quite on that level, but this has a couple of like big wizard duels. It also has a big proper like beastie set piece mm. in the middle. And as I said, I think this does do a, a decent job of the difficult task of tying in the Magical Beasts movie with the Rising yes, Fascism yes. movie. And you get this great sequence in the middle with these like little lobster killer, <laughs> like monkey armadillo crab things. <laughs> yes. And there's also a, a like a big one. Um, and that is a really fun sequence that has that has charm, that has wit, that has exciting action beats, um, that has all the things that you want from this world. So I really enjoyed the fact that this one had some like properly decent yeah. action sequences. That's the most in. Potter this felt. Like mm -hmm. it felt universal and it felt a lot of fun. But I just I can't bring myself it, a lot of this film just feels so cynical like again you talk about uh, Dan Fogler's character who you're right is sort of an MVP type thing he's great uh, but just the way they kind of sold the he gets a wand he goes to Hogwarts like, I feel a lot like that plot thread existed exclusively for inclusion in the trailer and it just felt like that whole thing was missold and it's just like they promised something that this film doesn't deliver they, uh, yeah there, there's a little bit of a mispromise in the trailer but at the same time I, I, I agree with Ben on his character I think he brings a lot of heart he's very charming yeah, he's very charming and, and I do think this film does do one thing which is good which is, gives you some visual invention there's a, a thing with books a porky with books which mm. is spectacular there's a sequence at the beginning which is very much not for kids but again it's something it feels like we've not seen before mm -hmm. so there's fresh stuff here and like I said I think I did engage with this much more than I did the previous two films the first one was just nebulous didn't really have a story the second one was ill-judged and again ill-defined as well is, and this one did feel that it had 
um, an amount of focus. It might be misjudged focus to a certain extent, but it did feel like it was going somewhere. But yeah. we are at a point now, exactly to your point, Helen, we are now three films in and it feels like the plot is now beginning. Yeah. And it's just like, I, we don't need that. We've mentioned it, but I think we need to mention it again. Mads Mikkelsen is such an upgrade. Yeah, he's great. He's so, so much of an improvement. And there's so much more of a sense of two equals working against each other with opposing viewpoints now. Mm. And that, I think, is going to make a big, big difference. If this if this film does well enough that they make those last two, it will, I think, a lot of it be down to that. Three stars then for the Fantastic Beasts, the... Secrets? Secrets of... Dumbledore. Dumbledore. <laughs> the Secrets of Dumbledore. And there we go. Three stars then for that film. Uh, next up, last week we talked a little bit about how animation was besmirched at the Oscars uh, and we talked about the fact that it's, it's a medium that's not just for kids and there are uh, movies out there that are aimed at adults as well. And uh, then one was snuck out under our very noses mm-hmm. on the Netflix uh, which kind of astonished me because it is not just an animated movie. It's the new movie by Richard Linklater, one of the great American filmmakers. And it kind of just appeared on Netflix without warning. It is called Apollo 10 and a half. And it's terrific. Yeah. <laughs> and why was it snuck out there? I don't know. Hell's it makes bells. no sense. Yeah. So the idea is basically you have uh, an adult character called Stanley, who's voiced by Jack Black. Essentially, looking back on his life, uh, remembering what it was like to grow up um, as NASA was preparing the Apollo 11 mission, particularly what it was like to grow up uh, in Houston, where it was very much present and part of every day because Mm -hmm. people were working on various aspects of the rockets, of the mission control, of whatever else. And so you have a kind of uh, twofold story. Most of the film, actually, contrary to the marketing, most of the film is just about here is what my life was like when I was nine. And it's like the it, Wonder Years. Yeah, it is. It's version. like the Wonder Year, very much so. Um, here's what my life was like. Here are my mum and dad and here are what my brothers and sisters and I were up to. And then there's also this slightly fantastical element where um, young Stanley is contacted by NASA because they've accidentally built a capsule that's too small for an adult and they need to send a kid into space to check out that all their systems are working before the main mission. Um, And he is recruited under top secret conditions to be this kid and go into space and go to the moon Mm -hmm. uh, and make sure all is well. That's uh, two NASA officials played by Glenn Powell and Zachary Levy. So it's, look, it's super duper charming basically it's just it is Mm. like you say it's the wonder years it's Mm. it's just remembering your childhood it's that kind of you know very spielbergian amblin kind of childhood that we you know it's so warm yeah it's It's so warm warm and funny uh it's perhaps there's a flood of voiceover which some people might struggle with i I mean it is it it, but it felt to me like uh, like just curling up with a really really lovely short story yeah very much um, so. uh, and uh, it's just it's just an absolute delight and it is animated in the so a lot of it was shot live action and then rotoscoped in the in the technique that that later used on Waking Life Waking Life Waking Life <laughs> Dream Waking Life and Dreams uh, but it really works well here uh, as well I mean it worked well in Waking Life it works here mm-hmm. also um, and then other things were just animated yeah uh, as well uh, it's just a, a beautiful film and it's the new film by Richard Linklater and it is not being promoted at all and I just feel like maybe I don't know this is the pact that, you, that some filmmakers strike when they work for one of these streaming giants that yes we'll give you lots of money to make your very very personal vision and we won't interfere and you get to make the movie but the other side of that coin 
is that we're not really going to tell people about it. It, he's in that sort of Soderbergh space as well, because you mentioned that the last few Soderbergh movies have, have sort mm. of plopped out there. Where'd You Go, Bernadette didn't get released here and then didn't just get showed up on Now Madness. TV. Yeah. Previous to that was Last Flag Flying, which was for Amazon, which also was, I mean, Amazon don't really promote their stuff yeah. that much either. And they, especially at that time, uh, it was this was a good few years ago now, they weren't really doing much promo for that at all. So like the last three Richard Linklater movies have all yeah. just kind of happened quietly which is feels like a real shame yeah massively yeah Yeah. but it's great it is terrific it's on netflix right now Uh, we gave it four stars uh so go and seek it out apollo ten and a half top link later i would say it's it's certainly up there uh what else do we have we have the outfit and we have all the old knives let's do all the old knives jimbo Yes, this is Janis Metz Peterson's film. Uh, it's based on, well, it's the screenplay by Olin Steinhauer based on his novella, his sort of spy novella. And it stars Chris Pine as Henry Pelham, and a CIA operative, and Tandy Wayne Newton as Celia Harrison, who is an ex CIA operative. And it's essentially an Instagram worthy dinner where they sit and they have fine wine and they have delightful entrees uh, while rehashing the hijacking of Royal Jordanian Flight 127, which has happened eight years earlier and gone horribly wrong and resulted in the loss of lives of everyone on board. And it's their ex-colleagues, they are ex-lovers, and they're kind of going over this. He's trying to ferret out whether she was involved, as evidence has come to light, that there may or may not have been a mole in the station at the time. So this is basically a meal, but there are flashbacks to them when they're based at the Vienna station when this hijacking took place. There's flashbacks to a conversation that he has with a former station chief uh, who is played by Jonathan Price in this. And then there's even further flashbacks to his posting in Moscow. And all of these stories kind of tie together as we gradually unpick the events that led up to the disaster that was this hijacking. Um, It's very Le Carre-esque. It's quite Mm. involved. It doesn't quite go where you think it's going to go. But I think the thing with this film is you'll either enjoy the way it's framed or you won't. And it it is, it's this kind of flashback multi-timeline structure based around this meal. But I think for me, it was anchored in these two performances, which is obviously Pine and Newton. And I think they give this brilliant, because of the way they parted, because of the way the relationship ended, there's a lot of baggage there. There's a lot of things left unsaid. You know, she's happily married with kids, but there's still a real frisson between them when they meet up. And as it gradually plays out, like, why did they break up? What happened? Why did she leave suddenly? You know, is it suspicious? Is it not? You know, the emotional weight of this was, I think, what carried me rather than the spy craft. I was interested in what drove events. Um, But equally, it's quite ponderous. And it doesn't go anywhere quickly. And it just luxuriates a lot in lingering glances and them sort of fondling wine glasses and things like that. And I think if you can go with that, there's a lot to like about this. But equally, you could maybe get bored quite easily. (laughs) Yeah, I I like this. I think I'm probably quite similar. I think, you know, it does feel like you're rehashing the same event a lot because yeah. it is really focused on this one day of the of the hijacking and you're going over bits of that over and over and over again mm. but i think that kind of worked for me because it felt like it was getting really granular and really detailed in in trying to dissect exactly what happened and who was what where when and who's lying about this that and the other um so that that kind of worked i i i, I sensed some of the things that were coming but I, not all of yeah, them. Yeah, same, same. Um, so, so that I thought was good. Um, it did, it did make the end a little bit um, 
drawn out because I thought, oh, well, we know this now. Everything's everything's over and it wasn't. There was more to come. Um, so that that was good. My, one of my big notes, I have to say, is they're in this fantastic restaurant. It's on a cliff. It's overlooking the sea, it's like Monterey or somewhere. And they've CG'd the view yeah. so that they could control the sunset, I guess. And I kind of wish they'd just done a bunch of takes every evening at six o'clock or something, you know. I mean, it is, it's, a, it's permanent magic hour all the yeah. way through this, isn't it? But, <laughs> so you but, could think they thought, no. But it was so distractingly, you know, in it your does, face it, at yeah, times. It, 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 yeah, it does look real. They so, are kind of yeah. smouldering in amber light all the way through, which is lovely. Well, I mean, I have no problem with beautiful people smouldering exactly. at each other, you know. But um, but yeah, I, I thought that it was just, it distracted me from their performances, which are very good. So yeah, that was mm. my big big note on that. Yeah, I wasn't as big a fan as you guys. I thought it was quite ponderous. Um, and it was a, a bit of a struggle for me, a bit of an ordeal, watching the pretty people eat food. I give the food three Michelin stars. <laughs> I, I give the food, film itself two stars. really good, yeah. Fantastic yeah. food and where to find it. Oh, yeah. oh. oh Also, you know, the chemistry between the two of them, there's a part where, where Chris Pine feeds Tandy Wayne Newton a piece of bacon and you're like, bloody hell. You know, yeah. it's almost obscene. He's got good hair in this one. I'm he just does saying. have good hair mm. and good beard. Good beard, yeah. Very good beard. He's grown into his hair. If you go back to the Princess Diaries too, terrible hair. Yeah. I'm just saying. Four stars there for Chris Pine's hair. <laughs> three stars? I'm saying we don't have the official empire of you to hand, but it feels, yes. It I think feels this like is a three, three stars. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I'd go two, but um, yeah, I'm Harsh. obviously just you're, an ornery. I'm ornery, ornery this episode. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I, I think it's got good sort of, it's it's weird because it's it's the war on terror, but they managed to get a, a good sense of that Cold War paranoia. Yeah, yeah, in those I scenes, agree. Which I really mm. liked. Three stars then for... All the Old Knives, which is on Prime Video. That's where you can find that. And you can find The Outfit, which is the directorial debut of Graham Moore, who is the writer of The Imitation Game, in cinemas. Uh, ben, tell us about this one. So this is set in 50s Chicago, and it is a, a tense, um, very well-scripted, really well-performed little like gangster thriller uh, so at the heart of it you have Mark Rylance who plays Leonard Burling who I want to call him a Leonard tailor Leonard Burling sorry <laughs> I want to call him a tailor but he makes a point in the film of saying I'm not a tailor I'm a cutter he is somebody who cuts fabric with insane accuracy and skill uh, he works in a fancy gentleman's suit place a tailor's basically, <laughs> yes. as you put. He just said he. But there's a bit where he's like makes a point of like I'm not a tailor. Anyone with 15 minutes and a thing of bread can be a tailor. Um, but yeah, so this is 50 Chicago. Uh, he is working in his shop, which also is a sort of hideout slash uh, note passing place for local mobsters. And it's over the course of an evening where everything goes kind of wrong. There is lots of talk of a mole. Uh, you get Dylan O'Brien uh, strolling in, covered in blood, having been shot. Uh, he is the son of the main mobster. His right-hand man is played by Johnny Flynn. There is lots of suspicion and guessing and double-crossing, uh, people having to be stitched up at mm -hmm. the tailors, uh, and things only get more twisted from there. And the film basically all takes place in the shop in a way that would mm -hmm. theoretically feel quite a little bit stagey, and it just really doesn't because it feels really cinematic in the way the film is able to position you in Mark Rylance, in, in Leonard's perspective of having to tread very carefully across the course of this evening mm. and 
be super on it with what he's saying to different people and how he plays certain situations in order to survive the night and avoid suspicion and also just find out what the hell is going on because you're getting kind of snatches here and there of what's happened, what this shootout is, who it was between and why. Um, And I thought this was going to be a bit of a like... Sunday afternoon watch it with your mum movie because it's <laughs> Mark Rylance is a tailor and there's like it's quite old fashioned in a way that's really lovely mm. I did not expect it to be as gripping and as tight and as engaging as it is mm. it's got a really lovely Alexandre Dusblat score which um, brings a lot of kind of energy it has some kind of nice sweeping strings but it has that like plinky plonky desplatness um, I love when you use technical terms yeah um, <laughs> all about the technical terms um, yeah that, that really gives an energy to the film I think the performances are great Rylance is really really good and it has this lovely thing of you know in the prestige where you get bits of voiceover and bits of exposition about how magic tricks are done that is also telling you how the film is being done you basically mm. get that for this but with tailoring and gangsters yes in a way that feels really smart yeah this is uh, this is tremendous uh, which I learned this week uh, was actually a word that, that meant the opposite of what it means now. Hmm. So it, it was meant to, uh, when, when Tremendous first came into the lexicon, it actually meant uh, shocking in a bad way. Ah. So It's just like nonplussed, which means one thing on this side of the Atlantic and the opposite thing on the other side of the Atlantic. I think it just means the opposite thing for wrong people. <laughs> but there are, words that, there are words that are their own opposite, like dust. What? Well, like you can dust if you're saying. Oh, so it can be dust, but dusting, you can dust, you and can then you're removing dust. You could be dusting some some dust onto something, or you can be dusting some stuff off something. Wow. Anyway, there's words. There's a name for she it. I've forgotten. Uh, anyway, so this is tremendous, which means good in this case. Okay. Uh, I'm I nonplussed. I thought it was uh, terrific. I was not nonplussed or nonplussed by it, depending <laughs> on where you live. And yeah, it's it's great. And it's very, it could be a play. Absolutely, it could be a play. And I would go and see that play. But it's great watching Mark Rylance's character, uh, who is a dapper, debonair gentleman, trying to outwit these thugs who are in his midst, in his gaff, in his place of work. Uh, and Johnny Flynn's great uh, also as a gangster who just exudes menace and thuggery and can turn on a dime uh, and watching Leonard try to navigate these people and try and pick his way through it and there are genuine twists and genuine surprises that you don't, well you may see them coming now, I've told you there are genuine twists and surprises but it's a it's a movie that doesn't stay still every time you think oh this has got to be it, it's only 45 minutes in, that's it, they've, they've wrapped it up there's something else, there's a rug pull and Rylance is in like full Rylance mode without full being violence. overly snozcumbery. Like, you know, when he's doing his little he's not yeah. he's not doing that. He's and it's quite nice to the see. The BFG him not in this case that. is bad fucking gangsters and he's yes. battling them. He is. Right. Yeah. He is. He's going around in in the night sucking out their dreams through yeah. a wow. big trumpet. So Lovely snozcumber. Are you saying this is more Wolf Hole Rylance? I have not seen Wolf Hall, but, but I did go... Quiet, clever Rylance. Yes, quiet, clever, conniving, calculating... Bridge of Spies Rylance. Bridge of Spies Rylance. Maybe not so much Phantom of the Open Rylance. Right. That guy would be yeah. dead in the first five minutes of this movie. Not Definitely Jerusalem not, Rylance. Definitely not Don't no. Look Up or Ready Player One Rylance Good. as well. Cool. Yes. I did not watch Wolf Hall, but when that show was on, 
there was a local dog costume show, uh, like a competition in our local park called Woof Hall, oh. and the dogs <laughs> wore like little Tudor outfits. Yeah, um, because Mark Rylance is from my neck of the woods, my part of South London. Yeah. So it was oh, really? like a little tribute to Mark Rylance. Did and, he show up? Uh, I I feel like he maybe did. Was there a dog called Bark Rylance? There should have been. Mm. Ah, real missed opportunity, huh? Really was. Uh, listen, you know, I finally kind of forgiven Mark Rylance for uh, stealing the Oscar from Sylvester Stallone uh, for Creed when he won it for Bridge of Spies. Obviously, a very good performance and a very good film, but it ain't Sly Stallone and Creed. Now, is it? I thought I'd make my peace with it, but clearly I haven't. <laughs> but anyway, he's tremendous in this, and he's one of our greatest actors. And you know, he had for years he he had made his name on stage mm-hmm. and focused on theatre acting. And uh, over the last few years, he has he'd made films and TV in the past, obviously, but he has really decided to throw himself into that. And he's so good in films like this and The Phantom of the Open that there is part of me that would have liked him to throw himself into film and TV a little earlier. He's perfectly happy with his career choices, of course. Uh, but, you know, it might have been nice to have more Mark Rylance. Yeah. It, it, having said all that, it's very good. He's he's also going back to the stage in Jerusalem, which yes. is the play that kind of made everybody sit up and take notice at last. He'd obviously, again, done some things before, mm-hmm. but that was the moment. Was he star Mark Rylance before that? Um, I, no, I don't believe so. Okay. That was, it came sometime afterwards. That was 2009. 2009. Uh, but it, it is supposed to be coming back for a limited run this year. So if... Just do keep an eye out for that. Isn't he doing it right now? Oh yeah, it started actually. Yeah, yeah it started. That's why. Or, or yeah. this this yeah. moment. Yeah. That's why he's unavailable for interview. Anyway, seriously, if you can get a ticket, get a ticket. It's one of the most astonishing things I've ever seen. Helen's views on Shakespeare's authorship uh, do not align with those of Mark Rylance. So she's perfect. saying that. Yeah. There you go. Helen has made her peace with that. I'm I willing made her to pe- overlook it. Yeah. On this occasion. On this occasion, we are willing to overlook that and give four stars to the outfit. It is terrifically tremendous. Check it out, wow. folks. Yeah. Beautifully Does anyone cut. at any point say, how do I get out of this chicken shit outfit? And no, they don't. But we're about to do that because it is time to get out of this chicken shit outfit and uh, and get some lunch. Hooray! Should we yes, do that? I'm starving. Yes, so I'm hungry. so hungry. I've, I think I passed out four times during the Fantastic Beasts and the... Um, Secrets of Dumbledore. Secrets yeah. of Dumbledore review. On that note, oh that God. is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by... The Overbook is back, people. The Overbook is back. Yes! Alexander Skarsgård, star and producer of The Northman, which is bonkers. <laughs> and Colin Firth and Matthew Good, stars of Operation Mincemeat. World War II movie, which is out next week. I have so many trivia facts about that one. It'll be fun for everybody. <laughs> oh, Any wow. of them as good as the octopus, though, Helen. That's what I want to know. Just, yeah. Helen's going to make mincemeat out of that one <laughs> next week. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be a fun pod, folks. Uh, but until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it's goodbye from my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Helene herself, Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. James Draco Malfoy. <laughs> He's even wearing Dyer. green. <laughs> I am wearing green. I am wearing Slytherin green. That's true. Uh, it is goodbye from Ben, whose uh, nipples do not produce butterbeer. We have established this. Ben Travis, goodbye. I was going to go reducto, but I I think redacto after what you <laughs> yeah. just said. Jesus. Ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And it is goodbye from me. I am still incensed about being compared to Ron Weasley. I reject this in the strongest possible terms. Anyway, if you must excuse me, I left my Ford Anglia parked in a Whomping Willow. 
Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. That was a Harry Potter reference. Was it? It was a very good It was a fantastic Harry Potter reference and where to find it. Chamber of Secrets, which is what we talked about in the interview. No way! That's where I first met Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah, and Nick was on set. No, I was on set. I was on set of Chamber of Secrets. for Empire, but Nick was working as a runner. Nick was on set as a runner. On Chamber of Secrets. And I was doing a round table with other journalists and we interviewed Daniel Radcliffe, who was only like 12 at the Mm -hmm. time. And at the end of the interview, he got up and he said, which one of you is Chris Hewitt? And I went, it's me. And he went, my dad says hello. Because what? we went to the same school. No. But we didn't know each other. Hogwarts. Yeah. yeah, Hogwarts. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And you interviewed his granny. Daniel Radcliffe's granny. Yeah, Elsie. Yeah. Little granny Radcliffe. Elsie Radcliffe. She lived in, uh, she lived in Banbridge. Yeah. Lunch. Lunch. Mince meats. Bags of the octopi. Bags of the octopi.